Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, episode 57. Welcome back. The purpose of this podcast is to explore philosophy, psychology, and science with an emphasis on the great 19th century philosopher George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. What's my podcast's paradigm? It's simple, that there's more going on in the world than blind naturalistic materialism. In this episode, I will be addressing an age-old problem. Why isn't life fair? You often hear people say, why do bad things happen to good people? And I'm sure all of you know someone, a decent person, a great family where some misfortune or tragedy has struck. And the suffering is far worse than anything they may have done in their own lives to cause it. There was even a very popular bestseller entitled When Bad Things Happen to Good People back in 1981. So why isn't life fair? Well, we're going to be discussing this in this episode, but just briefly, there's a concept of reincarnation that offers an explanation. And we talked about reincarnation in the last episode. And Many around the globe believe that karma provides an answer to this question, why life isn't fair and why bad things happen to good people. And as I said in the previous episode, though, I do not hold to that belief that we suffer due to past life transgressions. As I said then, I believe we can call on memories of those who have lived before us, but I do not believe distinct soul personalities reincarnate for the purposes of punishment or retribution or anything like that. Now, Western religions posit the notion that a good life will end us up in heaven, where an evil life will put us straight in hell. And I do not believe that that's how things work either. So why is there evil in the first place? Well, in the West, it begins with the biblical story of Adam and Eve being expelled from the Garden of Eden. And we'll be spending some time on this in this episode. And I'd like to say, though, up front, that in the East in general, they do not put the same weight on good and evil as distinct metaphysical concepts as the West does. Confucius and the I Ching are much more about better ways for one to exist in society. Yes, there are better ways and worse ways, so there is this duality. However, there is not this hard concept of good and evil as there is in the West. Same goes for Taoism, which emphasizes compassion and moderation. Again, there is the contrary lack of compassion and lack of moderation. But as in Confucianism, the emphasis is not on core good and evil. That concept is much more Western, again, in general. But regardless of one's beliefs, the problem of evil is one of the biggest philosophical and religious questions there is. Again, why is the world made that way? And even if the world sprung up by accident, why do we perceive good and evil? And hopefully this episode will provide some perspective on this question. Now, a theodicy is a philosophical and a religious explanation for why evil exists in a world created by a good God. Some argue that God gave us free will, so any evil is our own fault. This does not explain the evil and destruction caused by natural disasters, though. Some say, like existentialists, that it does not matter where the world came from or how it works. The only thing we have is our own freedom to choose how to live, how we want to live, and how we give meaning and purpose to our life. Now, the interesting thing here is that I believe Hegel's philosophy does indeed provide a theodicy. However, his conception of God or the absolute is not the traditional God of the Bible. And this is important for understanding his theodicy, and we will be discussing this in some detail. 
So where do I net out in this question? Well, I believe that good and evil are not absolute metaphysical concepts. They can have a degree of relativity to them. They are most usually situationally based on the time, the place, and the action of an individual and others. I believe that betterment, greater freedom, progress, much like the way it is viewed generally in the East, is a superior way to perceive good and evil. Certainly, there are real problems to overcome, and people find themselves in situations they do not deserve. But the key to me is how they handle the situation, how to respond to the hand that they've been dealt. Hegel teaches that spirit or mind has othered itself in nature in order to make itself real, concrete. And nature alone has no good nor bad. But it does have randomness. In other words, S-H-I-T happens. And as a result, spirit is evolving toward greater self-awareness and freedom within and through nature. And it is a long historical process that is often bloody and miserable. I believe that's what's going on here. And that is Hegel's theodicy. First, I want to cover the prevalent concept in the West going back to ancient times, and that is this, that it is the wrath of gods that cause misfortune due to to something that humans have done. Yet even today, most people I know that have endured significant hardship, they're being honest, would say that they wonder at times if it was something they did in their life that somehow caused their misfortune. It is almost like we have a built-in morality ledger when things go wrong. We might feel that it is somehow uh, karmic payback. It's almost like this is baked into our psychology somehow. Maybe it's part of the collective memory, the collective unconscious that we discussed in the very last episode. But in our scientific age, we tend to discount this today. There's only the known cause of an event, not some mysterious cosmic judge that shapes our fate. But Interestingly, even in the scientific age, we still hold on to our feelings about this. The ancient Jews of Israel blamed the destruction of their temple on them losing their way and going against God's commandments. In fact, this is quite an interesting story, which we'll be getting into. But in today's secular world, this is just viewed as a fairy tale of an old-fashioned religion. But let's go back and and revisit the story of the temple in, in Jerusalem. It was originally built by King Solomon, the son of David. It was completed in 957 BCE. And interestingly, it was built to house the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant has its own interesting story. It was a wooden box that God instructed Moses to build to house the two tablets that contained the Ten Commandments that he received on Mount Sinai. Now, the ark was kept in different places for a while. It was even captured once by the Philistines and later returned. The Israelis used to bring it out to battle because they thought it would put God on their side. And when Solomon built the temple, he put the Ark of the Covenant in the centermost room, which was called the Holy of Holies. And this is all heavily recorded in the Hebrew Old Testament Bible. And it's interesting that the Ark was seen as a way for God to dwell with the Israelis here on earth. And this provides an early, very early indication of God's presence on earth, which would later be taken up by the figure of Jesus in Christianity. It is interesting that the high priest of the temple would only enter the Holy of Holies once a year, one day a year on Yom Kippur. He would bring a blood sacrifice, usually a lamb or a goat, and ask for forgiveness from the Almighty for any wrongdoing of the people during the previous year. 
And legend has it that a rope was actually tied around the ankle of the high priest before he went in, in case he was struck dead by God for his bad deeds or the bad deeds of the people. No one else could enter the Holy of Holies and be in the presence of God without being struck dead, except for the high priest on this one day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So they needed the rope just to pull him out in case he he was struck dead. Now, for those of you that are Jewish or may have been to a Yom Kippur service or have Jewish friends, a key part of the Yom Kippur holiday is asking God for forgiveness for any transgressions over the last year. It is even customary for Jews today to write to their friends on Yom Kippur and ask for forgiveness for any wrongdoing they might have committed toward them in the previous year. Now, the temple itself was seized and totally destroyed in 587 BCE by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar II, and the Jews were then deported to Babylon. This is referred to as the Babylonian exile, and the Ark of the Covenant was taken from the temple during this time and never returned. It it perhaps has never been found even. Several groups today claim to have the actual Ark, but scholars put little or no credence in these various claims. What is important about all this is the notion that God would judge us for our behaviors and punish us if we broke bad. And the destruction of the temple was seen as a great sign to the Jews of Israel. The land they were promised was taken. Their sacred temple was now destroyed. And this fulfilled many prophecies that were contained prior to this by the prophets. If the people strayed, God would punish them. The Babylonian exile was a watershed moment for the Jews. They lamented what had happened, and they recommitted to restore their faith. It was during this period that the Old Testament Bible began to be formed as one corpus of work. You can read Lamentations in the Old Testament for more on this recommitment, as well as the book of Isaiah, which describes this recommitment to reconstruct the faith of the Jewish people. And then something happened. Some 70 years later, after the destruction of the temple and they were taken to Babylon, the Persian king Cyrus II conquered Babylon and freed the Jewish people, allowing them to return to Israel and rebuild the temple, which they did, holy of holies and all, but now without the Ark of the Covenant. The second temple was then ultimately destroyed by the Romans in 70 CE, which led to the so-called rabbinical form of Judaism, which is basically what's practiced today, where emphasis was put on Hebrew writings and interpretations of Scripture. This is when the Mishnah and the Talmud were written down. They were scholarly interpretations of the Old Testament. And they stem from the belief that that originally there was a written Torah and an oral Torah. And before the destruction of the Second Temple, the rabbis felt it was forbidden to write down the oral Torah. But after the destruction, they felt things had changed enough and they were going to put the oral Torah into writing. And this was the Mishnah and the Talmud. And this process was concluded around 500 CE. As I mentioned, all Jews today, whether Orthodox, Conservative, or Reformed, followed this rabbinical tradition. So the Israelis were punished by God for their misdeeds. But what is the basis of this belief in right and wrong and a punishing God if his rules and commandments are not obeyed? Well, the answer is right at the beginning of the Hebrew Old Testament and the story of Adam and Eve. You all know the story. God created Adam and Eve. And actually, there are two different origin stories contained in the very Bible, in Genesis. 
First is what's known as the version from the priestly source called P for short, which had Adam and Eve created together on the sixth day of creation. In the second version, the Yahweh source, J for short, most scholars believe it was written much earlier. It had Adam created first. Now, both texts were preserved and incorporated in the final version of the Bible that we have today. And all in all, most biblical scholars believe the Bible was put together from four original sources, including P and J, which we just discussed, and there were two others, upon their return from the Babylonian exile. Now, what happens following the creation of Adam and Eve is what is of interest to us regarding good and evil. Adam and Eve live in the Garden of Eden, as you all know, and there were two trees there, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I'll let Hegel pick up the story from here. Quote, Adam eats of it and attains knowledge of good and evil. The difficult point, however, is that we are told that God forbade humanity to acquire this knowledge. For this knowledge is precisely what constitutes the character of spirit. Spirit is spirit only through consciousness, and the highest consciousness lies precisely in such knowledge. How then can this have been forbidden? Cognition or knowledge is this two-sided dangerous gift. Spirit is free, and this freedom embraces good and evil. It can also involve acting capriciously, doing evil. This is the negative counterpart to the affirmative side of freedom. Humanity, we are told, was in the state of innocence. This is, as such, the state of natural consciousness, and it must be sublated as soon as the consciousness of spirit enters in any way on the scene. This is the eternal history and nature of humanity. At first, humanity is natural and innocent, and so cannot be held responsible. In the child, there is no freedom, end quote. So Hegel sees the fall not as a fall, really, but actually a step into a new, higher dimension of awareness and consciousness. Animals do not have a sense of good and evil. Yet humans, now embodied with spirit, are free to choose between right and wrong, between good and evil. And the biblical text goes on to say that they will become like gods if they eat the fruit. And this is indeed true. Pure animals no more. They have attained spirit. And there's another aspect. As a so-called punishment, God also tells them they will know death. Animals do not know they will die. This is uniquely human. So humanity in ancient times evolved to have self-consciousness, cognition, and awareness of good, evil, and death. And they also came to learn that they were created through the act of sex. This is shown when Adam and Eve knew they were naked only after eating the fruit. And this brought a new dimension to procreation and often gets confused with and conflated with good and evil notions. Now, once our ancestors found themselves in this situation, it must have been a terrible, terrifying experience for them. So they invented stories and narratives to explain what was going on, including external god or gods that would punish them for their misdeeds. And this belief continued for a very long time, even up until today. We saw it in ancient Israel, how this narrative was a core part of the Jewish tradition. We see it in the heaven and hell mythos of Christianity, and many of us still have a sense of this in our hearts, that the good will be rewarded and the evil punished. So if one does not believe in these narratives, what does this mean? It means that humanity is now responsible itself for administering justice. 
And this is how most of our modern societies are structured. And we still struggle with this for sure, ensuring fair and appropriate justice and for producing systems that will reward peoples for efforts to be productive in society. And I believe this is how Hegel sees it, that reward and punishment must be administered with spirit uh, that exists among the people. And it's not in some separate realm. It's not a judge sitting up there on top of a mountain deciding who gets punished and who gets rewarded. It's, it's us. Well, let me cover an interesting theory here about how this evolutionary leap into self-consciousness and cognition occurred. Terence McKenna, who we mentioned in episode 36 and episode 41, claimed in his book, Food of the Gods, that the key thing that enabled Homo erectus to evolve into Homo sapiens was their ingestion of the psychedelic psilocybin. He coined this this happening, the stoned ape hypothesis. And other researchers have picked up on this. Let me quote from another source, quote, the evolutionary scenario put forward suggests that integration of psilocybin into ancient diet, communal practice, and proto-religious activity may have enhanced hominid response to the socio-cognitive niche while also aiding in its creation. In particular, the interpersonal and pro-social effects of psilocybin may have mediated the expansion of social bonding mechanisms such as laughter, music, storytelling, and religion, imposing a systematic bias on the selective environment that favored selection for prosociality in our lineage, end quote. Who knows if this is true, but it's interesting that in the Bible story, the knowledge of good and evil came from eating something. Hmm, makes you wonder. Now, let me step back and be perfectly clear on this. I in no way endorse the use of psychedelics. My message is do not try this at home, folks. And unfortunately, there's still people today that claim that magic mushrooms and other hallucinogenics may create higher states of consciousness. My belief is that wisdom and enlightenment is not found in a pill and it does not grow from the ground. Realizing spirit takes hard work. The best a psychedelic can do is temporarily shake the cage, so to speak, and give one new perspectives, but it's still up to the person to act following this. And there's a fine line here also between new insights, new perceptions, and delusional escape. However, I'm open to the notion that something like this, like the stoned ape hypothesis, may have occurred in ancient times. But today, we have so much information and knowledge at our fingertips... We do not need to get high to absorb it. But back hundreds and thousands of years ago, it may have been a different story. So to conclude, good and evil is a result of our own evolved consciousness and is up to us humans to administer justice fairly. But then, as I mentioned in the beginning, there's the thorny issue of natural disasters, hurricanes, floods, tsunamis, diseases that kill thousands. What's going on with that? Well, under Hegel's system, the natural world is a perfect othering of abstract reason and logic. It is there to allow spirit to come to know itself. This is a slow historical process of evolution. By overcoming nature, our animal instincts, and slowly evolving, we become freer and more rational. We find ourselves plopped in a world of nature, of random occurrences, of natural disasters. But we have a mission, and that's to enhance freedom, justice, and rationality within this world. And that's a wrap. I want to sincerely thank all of you who have been listening to this podcast over the last few years. And I also want to encourage you to reach out to me on the podcast Facebook page at Cunning of Geist. 
You can also follow me and comment on Twitter, also at, at Cunning of Geist. And I'll be listing all the references cited in this episode on the Facebook page, and I'll be posting a written transcript of this episode there in a few days. Now, note that I often post relevant comments between episodes on this page, where I try to relate what I've discussed here to other philosophers, other points of view, things in psychology, things in science, etc. So please check it out during the week. And also, please like, rate, and review this podcast wherever you listen. Don't forget to tell your like-minded friends about it as well. Feel free to share episodes on social media. Thanks again for listening. Thanks so much. This is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist. See you next time.